You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Scott. Hi, everybody. And he's right. It's one piping hot snowflake as the biggest software IPO of the year is now even bigger. The startup snowflake soaring in its open just in the past half hour. The stock was even halted for volatility. We'll have the very latest on its size and on whether there's too much froth, generally speaking, in these software IPOs. And don't forget, the Federal Reserve is set to announce its decision on interest rates in an hour. That's followed by a news conference by Chair Powell. And this is a big one. We'll tell you all of the important market-moving comments you need to watch for and what change the Fed has underway. We'll also hit a new call to boycott Facebook, Spotify calling out Apple, Stripe will pay you to move, and who wants a T-Rex? We'll explain. But we begin with the markets. Dom Chu, uh, Dom Chu here with the setup, Dom, an hour before the Fed. I want a T-Rex. Can I just raise my hand right now that <laughs> I want a T-Rex? a few million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> well, if I was able to invest in Snowflake and I could invest in Snowflake, maybe I could afford the T-Rex. But <laughs> anyway, let's talk about what happens, what's happening right now because Snowflake shares, you're going to talk about it later on. $319 per share. That was the intraday high, by the way, after the halt was lifted. But still, it's a decently moved, decently higher day for the Dow Industrials, up a half a percent, just off the worst le- or off the best levels of the session. Now, the S&P still above 3,400, up one quarter of one percent. And as Kelly pointed out, a little bit of red here, down one quarter of one percent on the Nasdaq Composite. As you take a look at some of the stocks that we will be watching today on this Fed decision day, Interest rates always a focus, as is the market reaction to what happens with a certain industry group, and that is what happens with the financials. So the banking side of things, J.P. Morgan State Chase up about one and a third percent, Citigroup up nearly three percent, two and a half percent gain for U.S. Bank on the regional bank side, and Truist Financial up about two and a quarter percent as well. So watch those banks, especially into that two o'clock hour with the Fed meeting. And let's talk about one stock in particular, and that's FedEx, a transportation stock that has nearly tripled since the lows that we saw back in March. You can see here that huge move higher for FedEx has been powering the Dow transports to a near multi-year high, close to a record high at this point. And get this, that 66% run that we've seen over the course of just this year-to-date period, by the way, in that 5.4% gain in the transports, let me put it this way. Since the lows that we saw, Kelly, FedEx is responsible for more than one-fifth of the entire move in the Dow Transportation Index since those March lows. Something to keep an eye on with that transportation sector. Kelly, FedEx, a big stock. I'll send things back over to it's you. It's crazy. in such a bellwether, like you said, of the economy absolutely grinding to a halt and now opening back up for business. Well, let's look at Snowflake. As we've been mentioning, it opened at $245 a share. Let's just pause on that for a moment. Snowflake priced it about half of that level uh, after it was hyped up already uh, in pricing as it was preparing to go to market. It opened at 245. We're around 252 right now. It was briefly halted for volatility just in the past half hour since it's began trading. Leslie Picker is here. She's following the whole story for us. And Leslie, this is not a tiny micro cap. This is what a $70 billion company right now? Well, n- well, now it is. And, and just to put a fine point on how rare it is to see a company this size or Any size double on its first day of trading. I pulled up some data from the University of Florida just now. Uh, In 2019, there were three companies that doubled. None of them were the size of Snowflake. And if you kind of follow this law of large numbers, you would think it would be a lot more difficult for a company that's raising $3.5 billion to double on its first day of trading. Well, that's exactly what we're seeing here with Snowflake. This is almost an unprecedented IPO. I have not seen anything like this, uh, at least in terms of this size and this 
this scale, uh, going back to 2018, one company doubled in its first day of trading. And we pulled some data looking at what companies that raised more than a billion dollars this year have done. Snowflake, obviously the best performer of all of those. You know, after that, we see companies, you know, generating returns of about 50, 40 percent on their first first days. So uh, a lot of investor who got investors who got stock at the allocation are happy right now. Frank Slootman uh, telling uh, John Fort last hour that, you know, this is just a hot deal, quote unquote, uh, and we will have to face the consequences of that. Uh, if the consequences mean, you know, insiders or, or previous investors making money, they are certainly happy today. Those investors who did not get stock in this allocation uh, are clearly trying to bid that up today yeah. uh, if they did indeed seek demand for this company, Kelly. Right, because Frank Sloot, this company could have raised twice as much money basically in this IPO, but it, it has already raised a pretty good amount. Leslie, let me just ask you what people are saying about uh, what this means. You know, yes, Snowflake, uh, for those who know it well, would say this is a, a really great company with a lot of runway and, and you know, a lot of great clients. But what is the feeling out there about software IPOs, the number that we've had, the trading that we've seen, you know, the froth that I'm sure people will start to talk about? Yes. So this is a perfect microcosm of how important software has become in a pandemic world. This company just raised money in in February. Uh, They were they were valued at twelve point four billion dollars in a private round back then. Uh, Their valuation in the IPO was almost three times that level. And now uh, we're seeing a company that's upwards of of 70 billion market cap right now. So clearly uh, the pandemic has changed things for software companies. JFrog, another software company that went public today, uh, that stock last I checked was up more than 60%. Uh, In its debut, I was asking investors, you know, are you seeing some spillover? People who didn't get demand for Snowflake, are they opting for JFrog? They said they're really apples and oranges companies. Uh, So it's difficult to say, but clearly software uh, has seen this tremendous demand. Uh, Growth still in vogue, despite the fact that, you know, the pandemic is nowhere near over. Yes. So we'll keep an eye on Snowflake. There's a tick by tick for you. It's more than doubled since beginning to, uh, to trade in the last hour. Leslie, thank you. Or Leslie Picker will follow it for us. And in the meantime, and not unrelated, we are less than an hour away from the Fed's decision on interest rates. It's the last one before the election. Investors are looking for any clues about the outlook and what kind of fiscal stimulus the Fed would like to see from Congress. Let's get straight to Steve Leisman for more. And Steve, this is a this is not an epical one, but we are expecting them to, in some ways, lay out a new framework here, right? Yes. Reservedly, I answer that question, Kelly, because the market approaches this meeting with many questions like you just had on the outlook for Fed policy, but it may end up unsatisfied with the economy still undergoing the effects of the virus, fiscal policy uncertain, and the Fed's new inflation strategy less than a month old. The Fed may not be ready to give out the answers that the market is looking for right now. Here are some of those questions. How much inflation will it tolerate after that new average inflation targeting policy that announced last month? Is it ready to do more quantitative easing, that is bond purchases? What happens if there's no fiscal package? And will it remain on hold through 2023? The outlook for rates will show up in the economic projections. We'll get those today, first time since June. And since the economy also has appeared to recover more rapidly than the Fed assumed, here are those projections. And take a look at how much work the Fed may have to do. We're down, the the original projection was down six and a half for this year. Our CNBC Fed survey is now closer to two and a half. Unemployment, 9.3. Well, guess what? The current unemployment rate is already 8.4. Inflation, the the outlook may tick higher. And there's those Fed funds forecast, 0.5% 
01 through 20, 21 and 22. What happens in 2023? We'll learn that today. Chris Naguha from Evercore ISI expects our base case is no action today, but a triple play of dovish signals. Guha expects those signals to come from the forecast, from the statement, and from the Fed Chair's uh, Fed Chair Jay Powell's press conference. But Kelly, as you suggest, there are a lot of questions to be asked. And Chair Powell has his work cut out for him. I, th I think, Steve, how do you expect him to tie together the fact that the recovery has been better than they've expected with the fact that he'll be talking so much about potentially more measures that the Fed is undertaking? Well, I, I think he has continued to outline the risks to the forecast, and that has been the way that he and other Fed members have really decided to uh, to to portray this issue, the risk of a second wave, uh, which, by the way, it turned out to be accurate in the sense that we did have, I don't know if you want to call it a second wave or a second first wave, whatever you want to call it, but there was another outbreak in July. It did seem to perhaps in August create some uh, moderation in the recovery process. And I think he's still going to be worried about that. I think the Fed is happy to have economic data come in better than they expect and keep going the way it's going until it has to or is forced otherwise to change policy right now. Fascinating. Steve, thank you very much, sir. We'll see you in a moment. Steve Leisman, what can we expect in the direction of rates after 2023? Will the stalemate over another stimulus package force the Fed to make adjustments? Joining me now to discuss all of this, Brian Belsky is chief investment strategist at BMO Capital Markets. Julia Coronado is founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. And Subhadra Rajapa is head of U.S. rate strategy at uh, Society Generale. Brian, I'm going to start with you and throw you one on Snowflake, if you don't mind. Would you tie <laughs> the froth, if I can call it that, in software IPOs to the Fed's liquidity? I mean, is that emblematic of what's happening uh, in the market? I think it's more emblematic of portfolio managers, quite frankly, having a hard time managing their Apple position at 6% of the market or their Microsoft position or their Amazon position. And the, really the need for additional companies that are giving growth. And it's really a, a factor, quite frankly, Kelly, of the changing dynamic. We've said it I think a thousand times from every recession, we've gone from despair to hope and we're going to see new leadership. And I think the market wants that. It needs it. And, you know, I get a lot of questions on the froth of stimulus and the Fed. You know, what are you doing with all that Fed money and stimulus money? Well, you're buying stocks. And that's why I think, you know, America still is best poised with respect to equities around the world because we have the best companies in the world. And that's where the money's going. So what are your expectations, Brian, for the Fed meeting today? Because as somebody who's been pretty optimistic on the markets and on the recovery, you know, this is a Fed that's going to paint a, a much more dire picture of what's happening out there. Um, I guess it, it still all comes back to the liquidity that they've already generated and how much you think the markets can count on for the next couple of years, the, the higher CPI prints and that sort of thing notwithstanding. It's a great point, Kelly. And, and you know, just remember, we... we um, took off our, our scheduled uh, forecast on March 23rd for year-end, but we published a brand-new forecast at the year-end the day following uh, Mr. Powell's statements at Jackson Hole. I think that's a watershed event. So what we expect the Fed to do, nothing today. I don't think we're going to get a lot, of, a lot of quantifiable color, but I think the messaging is going to be they stand at the ready, and I think that's going to help, uh, help investors continue to feel very good with the decisions that the Fed is making. Julia, I'll turn to you on that note. You know, as, as someone who I think is largely supportive of the Fed's policies here, um, do they risk blowback because people say, well, wait a minute, there's all these traders making all these monies in these IPOs, but this is not translating to Main Street. I mean, we've heard this over and over and over again. Uh, how do you expect Powell to handle questions like that? 
Well, the answer has been from Powell and almost a, a unanimous chorus from, from all Fed speakers has been, we need more fiscal. We can lend, not spend. Our tools are limited. We're doing everything we can. We are committed to keep doing whatever we can for as long as necessary. But there's only so much the Fed can do. And the Fed has been unusually open and aggressive calling for more mm. fiscal support. Right ahead of this meeting, Chair Powell kind of struck an optimistic tone on the recovery, you know, that things are proceeding, uh, but that, uh, you know, that still more fiscal is probably needed and they're expecting it. He's probably a little bit more optimistic than realistic on the fiscal front. Uh, but for now, uh, they that is where they're going to lean is they can't do it all. They can't solve all problems for all people. Subhadra, let me ask you about positioning going into this meeting, because I've, I've heard kind of thoughts on two different ways. One, and I think you're in the more dovish camp, say expect the Fed to be more dovish here, you know, to try to make the markets sure that they're not going to take any steps too soon and kind of choke off the recovery. I've also heard people speculate that they might be hawkish, maybe even because of political bias, because maybe they think, well, we don't want it to be too good a setup and, and reelect President Trump. Now, I'm not saying I'm not going to ascribe that to every member of the Fed, but I, there's a case that's kind of being made both for them coming out on the hawkish side and on the dovish side today. Where what would you advise people to be on the lookout for? Um, I think I'm sort of leaning more towards a dovish message, uh, given the fact that for the most part, they have, from a data perspective, they haven't really gotten any tangible confirmation that the recovery is actually on, on strong footing. So, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, I've said this in the past, you know, the Fed is in a, in a monetary policy sweet spot. They have equities exactly where they want them to be. Financial conditions are extraordinarily easy. The dollar is actually weakening. And interest rates are extraordinarily range-bound. So, uh, you know, for the most part, since the market's already doing what they want them to want them to do, you know, for them, it's it's more a question of uh, keeping status quo and making sure that they're not make creating any volatility in the market. Uh, so I think they, they probably uh, stick to the dovish message. All right. And I know you think the 10 years, you're, we're going to kind of be in this half percent to one percent range for some time. Brian, let me circle back to you uh, and, and to the markets. And I thought you made a really interesting point that I hope people didn't miss uh, when I asked you about whether uh, Snowflake is emblematic of froth in the market. You said you think it's the need for portfolio manners, managers to find other companies with growth so they're not overinvested in the likes of Apple and the Fang names. Um, do you think, though, that satisfies the, sort of the full explanation for all the liquidity that's in the markets, the participation of retail investors? I mean, you're absolutely right, but there's there is another category of people who are in stocks this year. And, it, and you wonder if that goes back to the Fed and, and everything it's done to support the economy. Well, I think it goes back to people sitting at home and not being able to watch baseball or go to baseball games and do other things. And now that the <laughs> NFL is going, I think you've talked about it very adeptly at, on your exchange uh, show the last couple of weeks. And, but I think too much has been made of the retail investor in terms of rushing into the stocks. I, I just don't think it's, it ha, does not have a lot of founding. If you look at the contribution of performance of the stocks that they're actually buying, it's de minimis. And on, on the point of the Apple uh, call before, too, if you're a growth manager, it's depending upon what your benchmark, Kelly, think about this, you might have to own 10 or 15 percent Apple just to be benchmarked against mm -hmm. Apple. It's really difficult. So the need for additional software, the need for new leadership is what I think is going to drive the technology sector in the U.S. stock market higher. All right. Thank you all. Really appreciate it today. Brian Belsky, Julia Coronado and Subhadra Rajapa. 
Uh, shares of GE are on the move right now. Dom Chu is here with the market flash. What's going on, Dom? All right, they're up 8% right now on a pickup in volume near the highs of the day so far. What we have are headlines from Reuters coming out of GE's appearance at the Morgan Stanley Laguna Industrials Conference. CEO Larry Culp saying that they see positive cash flow in the second half of 2020. Also making some comments with regard to the aviation business. They see sequential improvement in that particular unit. Also, Larry Culp saying at this conference that they see our markets are by and large stabilizing. So those particular names and those particular headlines moving that stock. And I should point out, Kelly, just for your information and viewers, the stock is down 42 percent year to date. So we're seeing some positivity there. I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom. Thank you, Dom Chu. Still ahead from design flaws to prioritization of profits over safety. A new congressional report details the Boeing flaws that led to the 737 MAX grounding. We're going to look at the findings and Wall Street's reaction. Plus, could a celebrity Facebook boycott do more damage than a thousand advertisers leaving? That's ahead on The Exchange after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. Welcome back. The congressional report on Boeing and the FAA's missteps on the 737 MAX is out. While we were expecting it to be pretty damning, some of the details are still shocking. The stock not doing much right now, but take a look at the last 18 months. That's how long the MAX has been grounded. Shares are down more than 50% during that time. Philip Bo is here for the very latest on the report and its ramifications, Phil. And Kelly, let's be clear that the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee they slammed Boeing and the FAA. This 18-month investigation included dozens of interviews going over scores of documents, emails. A lot of this news has already been out there, which is one reason why the stock is up today. But the conclusion, well, they make it clear that they believe Boeing made a lot of mistakes along the way, and it ultimately led to the final conclusion in the report. The report's main investigative findings point to a company culture that is in serious need of a safety reset. Boeing has gone from being a great engineering company to being a big business focused on financial success. That success, according to the House, was predicated upon getting the MAX developed and out the door as quickly as possible. They blame production pressures for many of the MAX problems. They also slammed Boeing's culture for being a culture of concealment. In response to the report, Boeing says, as this report recognizes, we have made fundamental changes to our company as a result and to continue to look for ways to improve. Change is always hard and requires daily commitment, but we as a company are dedicated to doing the work. Keep in mind that the 737 MAX, which has been grounded since March of 2019, is scheduled to be ungrounded, or at least the expectation is that it will be ungrounded in the fourth quarter, maybe in November or early December. The expectation is then that deliveries of the MAX on a very limited basis will begin later this year. As you take a look at shares of Boeing over the last year, keep in mind that the backlog of commercial airplanes, which is largely the 737 MAX, it has come down substantially, now stands at 4,387 planes. Just for a point of reference, Kelly, go back to before the MAX, the backlog was about 55, 5,600 planes, somewhere around there, far higher than where it is right now for the commercial market. 
Yeah, we'll see how much this opens them up to further criticism, even litigation uh, now. Phil, thank you very much. Phil LeBeau with the congressional details. Coming up, Snowflake has all the attention today, but it's one of four software companies debuting this week. We'll tell you the other names that should be on your radar and why investors are jumping into this whole sector. And Shepard Smith sat down with author Bob Woodward about his new controversial book on President Trump. Shepard joins us with that interview as we count down to his new show next. Welcome back to The Exchange. About a half hour before the Fed decision, here's how the markets are set up. Dow's up 190 points. We're just about 40 points off the high of the session today. Two-thirds of a percent gain, about a uh, two-tenths of a percent gain for the S&P. So it's hanging on to just a six-point gain right now. And the Nasdaq is lower by 40 points or a third of 1%. Look at the sectors. You can see why. Here's the constellation. Energy and financials are your leaders. Uh, very interesting setup into the Fed decision. Uh, will this be confirmed or uh, thrown out uh, in about half an hour, hour, hour and a half's time? Uh, stay tuned and we'll figure it all out. Let's get to Sue Herrera in the meantime for a CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Kelly, lots happening at this hour, everybody. Just minutes. Minutes ago, word from the top spokesman at the Department of Health and Human Services is taking a 60-day leave of absence to, quote, focus on his health and the well-being of his family, end quote. Michael Caputo was widely criticized for suggesting CDC scientists are plotting against President Trump. If a COVID vaccine is approved, limited vaccinations could start in November or December. But the head of the CDC says we'll probably have to wait until summer for enough doses to be available to allow Americans to return to what he calls regular life. India's confirmed coronavirus cases passed 5 million today. The world's second most populous country has added more than a million cases this month alone. It also has the third highest death toll in the world and is expected to become the pandemic's worst hit country within weeks, surpassing the United States. And health officials are asking everybody to get their flu shots early this year because of the ongoing fight against COVID-19. It takes about two weeks after the shot for the immunization to develop for the full response. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll see you in an hour. Back to you. All right, Sue, thank you very much. And as I mentioned, stocks are kind of mixed but mostly positive as we await the latest Fed rate decision. And this one, by the way, the last one before the election, which is now less than 50 days away. And in his new book, Rage, author Bob Woodward reports that President Trump remains highly focused on the markets. In fact, our new chief general news anchor, Shepard Smith, sat down with Woodward and he joins me now. Shep, welcome to CNBC. Kelly, thank you so much. I talked to Bob Woodward about literally dozens of subjects, including the president telling Woodward one thing and telling the public another about COVID-19. Woodward says often the president would pivot to the markets and the economy. The stock market is one indicator of what's going on in the American economy. For the tens of billions of people who don't have jobs, who don't have enough food, who have no steady income, I mean, this is a crisis like the Great Depression in terms of people who live here and work here for tens of billions of people. He's a New York real estate uh, developer. He, he's a businessman. His muscle memory is clearly about markets. Were you surprised that in this pandemic, his focus, or at least part of it, appears to be on the markets? Well, it's, it's fair to raise, but and I, I said to him, I said, you know, 
do you realize what is going on? And he, he will acknowledge it, but he's not acting on it. And it's a good term, Shep, muscle memory. We all have muscle memories. We all have history and the past, and we need to use it, but we can't be prisoners of the past. Again, Bob Woodward talking about how the markets have informed President Trump's approach to the presidency, Shep. But what about his image as a businessman, which Woodward also says is really important to the president? Yeah, he addressed that. And really, you have to look no further than the last conversation Woodward had with the president. It was the middle of last month. The world, of course, course focused on the pandemic and how to slow the spread. And Woodward asking him about it. Yet the president, says Woodward, turned to the economy and the markets, asking, why don't I get any credit for that? Woodward pointed out to me and in the book just exactly what the scientists and the public health officials have been telling us all along. The virus must be brought under control before the rest of life can stabilize and return to something that really we can all live with. Virus first, economy, a special local economies and those for the underprivileged and the markets follow at least for the long term, Kelly. You know, it's funny you say that because I kind of want to ask you an inside baseball question about, you know, as you guys get ready for the show, if it were tonight, we have the Fed, we have the markets, we have COVID, you know, what should we expect? Well, ours, this is a business news day and a business channel, but at seven o'clock Eastern, six central, it becomes all news. It becomes the facts, the truth, the news in a general sense. So tonight, I think our headline is, in fact, I know it is, (laughs) water. Those who have it, way too much of it in the Gulf South, and those who need it desperately in the West. That's our lead, and that ties directly into COVID, because during this period, with people running from fires and running from water in the Southeast, they're all headed to shelters where they're concerned about COVID and fear that the spread is going to become worse in the face of these catastrophes. There's enough news for two hours tonight. Our entire team is upstairs preparing as if we had a newscast tonight at 7, and two weeks from today... We will, and I'm pumped. No, that's fantastic. Everything you just said, I think it's going to be much needed uh, perspective here. Uh, Shep, we thank you so much and look forward to it. Thank you, Kelly. Shepard Smith's new show, The News with Shepard Smith, kicks off September 30th at 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on CNBC. Still coming up, celebrities are boycotting Instagram and Facebook. Stripe will pay you 20 grand to move from the big city, but there's a catch. And a real, an actual T-Rex. I mean, not a live one, but it goes up for auction. All that and more on Rapid Fire. Stay with us. Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a couple headlines that definitely should be on your radar today. It is Rapid Fire. Here to break down those headlines, Michael Santoli, Julia Borson, and Robert Frank all join me. First up, dozens of celebrities are boycotting Instagram today. Oh, it's today. See, I didn't even know. As part of the Stop Hate for Profit movement to protest what they're calling Facebook's repeated failures to address hate speech and election disinformation on their platforms. Participants include Kim Kardashian West, Leonardo DiCaprio, Katy Perry, Mark Ruffalo, Ashton Kutcher, remember when he was the biggest thing on Twitter, uh, among others? Anyway, Facebook declined to comment when we reached out. So, Julia, I didn't even know this was happening. I mean, obviously, we have all been tracking the angst against Facebook. But why now from this group? Why today? What are they trying to accomplish here? Is it going to accomplish anything? Well, Stop Hate for Profit is the organization that it was a, a group of nonprofits that together organized that advertiser boycott back in July. Mm. They didn't, then expanded that advertiser boycott in August to bring in some international companies as well. Now they're trying to maintain attention on these issues, the idea that Facebook 
could be enabling the spread of hate speech. And to do so today, a number of big celebrities, including Kim Kardashian, who has nearly 190, 189 million followers on Instagram, are taking a pause on Instagram. So yesterday, you might have seen something that looks like this stop hate little logo here on some celebrities' Instagram pages. She posted explaining why she was going to be taking a pause from Instagram today, trying to raise awareness around these issues of the spread of hate speech. So what I think is really interesting here is this is not going to have the same kind of material impact on advertising revenue, but it could have an impact on engagement. This could be the first time that those 189 million people who follow Kim Kardashian are aware of these issues, are aware of this controversy. Will it have a meaningful impact on the amount of engagement on Facebook today? It's unclear. Probably not significant. It's only one day. But this is the first time we could really see this issue crossover from being an advertiser issue to a consumer issue. Yeah, possibly. Robert, what would you say? Yeah, I think Julie has it right about the lack of material impact. So Mark Zuckerberg is getting protested all the way to the bank. Yesterday, he gained $2.3 billion in wealth. Just mm -hmm. yesterday. So he gained more wealth in one day than the entire net worth of, of the Kardashian family. So, look, I, I just think the fact that they could only take away or get out of Facebook and Instagram for one day shows just how dependent all of them and all of us are on social media. I agree. Unless they get off for good, start their own, go somewhere else, uh, it, it, it doesn't really have as much heft. Um, still... I think speaks to the politicization, certainly, of Facebook. I mean, that's undeniable. Like you said, it hasn't stopped the share price, though. Let's move on. Talk about Spotify. They're calling Apple out after the iPhone maker unveiled their subscription bundle, Apple One, yesterday. That includes music, TV+, arcade, and iCloud storage for as little as 15 bucks a month. So Spotify saying, quote, we call on competition authorities to act urgently to restrict Apple's anti-competitive behavior, which, Michael, that's me saying, Michael, not them. If left unchecked, will cause irreparable harm to the developer community and threaten our collective freedoms to listen, learn, create, and connect. So, Mike, I mean, these are this is some pretty powerful sort of potent speech from Spotify. Should we expect more of this from them? And is it going to work? I certainly think you can expect more of it from, from Spotify. Obviously, we know the controversy about uh, the, sort of the gaming companies as well, taking exception to Apple's practices in the App Store. What is interesting is that Spotify do, does still have larger market share in music than, uh, than Apple does. So it's unclear if, if the, the heft of Spotify is going to be uh, more of a threat to Apple or the fact that they're that big means that, in fact, uh, Apple has not been able to you know, leverage uh, its advantage in a way that maybe Spotify says it is. So all those things in the mix, I will say a lot of, you know, the very few successful antitrust efforts that you've seen in these areas are about bundling. Yes. They are about putting stuff in there at a lower than economic, uh, you know, cost uh, to the consumer because you have, you're making money somewhere else. So there, there's probably something at the core of this criticism. This is a fascinating point, Julia, because we're going to see more and more of these super bundles, if you want to call them that. I love these new bundles. I mean, they've got music, they've got fitness videos, they've got cloud storage. I expect Google to roll out its own. Is Spotify in a vulnerable position here because it can't offer its own bundle? Maybe it ultimately is going to have to be part of someone else's. Well, what I would say is it can't offer its own bundle, but it is bulking up everything that it has. It has podcasts. It is investing more in video. But also, Spotify has been part of other bundles. Spotify has been bundled with Hulu. Spotify has been bundled with AT&T cellular service, sometimes with Samsung phones. So it has been part of other bundles. I think it's funny because for years you were talking about breaking up the bundle, going mm -hmm. a la carte. 
Now everyone's going back to the bundle. Again. Yes, the super bundle with a lot of other goodies thrown in. All right, this year's top CNBC Disruptor 50 company, which is Stripe, it's telling CNBC, I love this story, it's offering employees a one-time payment of $20,000 if they decide to move out of San Francisco, Seattle, or New York City because of the pandemic. Why is this interesting? Because this isn't the whole story. The bonus is meant to ensure they aren't hindered by the cost of relocating, but you get a 10% reduction to your base salary. Kate Rooney is here. Uh, she's been following it for us. Kate, well, I mean, it, there's, I'm curious, what's, what's your take? What do you think is the most kind of important part of, the, of what they've just announced today? Stripe stands out here. The other guy, you've seen Facebook, you've seen Twitter announce the same thing. Hey, you can leave San Francisco or one of these expensive metropolitan areas. Stripe is the only one that said, hey, you'll get a pay cut, but here is $20,000 up front to help you move. So to help mitigate the cost of moving, a lot of folks don't have $20,000 lying around to make that move. This is obviously no one predicted the that we'd all be working from home like this, uh, that 10% adjustment is also less than other companies. VMware, for example, said that they would cut pay by as much as 18%. So 10% when you compare it to others like VMware is a little better. They're still committed to this in-person office life, though. They're moving from San Francisco to south of San Francisco. They've got a huge, a huge office opening uh, sometime next year. So the question is, how many people are actually going to take them up on this uh, yeah. when they do offer that bonus. Robert, is it a bribe? Is it, hey, we'll pay you 20 grand to get out of one of these <laughs> cities because that's going to be in our interest in the long run? It's a bribe I would take in a heartbeat. So if you look <laughs> at the cost of living of, of San Francisco or New York City, taking a 10% pay cut to go to almost anywhere else in the country is a huge pay increase. The average cost of living in San Francisco is about 80% higher than the national average. Average home price, 1.4 million. Average rent, 4,100 a month. So absolutely, you can go to Austin, you go to Chicago, you go almost anywhere but New York City, and it's a huge upgrade in lifestyle. Kate, do you think they do or don't want people to leave? Because you could then, to, I, I think Robert's absolutely right about that. It's not a huge pay cut, so maybe they don't actually want people to leave, and they're hoping that's not a big enough incentive. So Stripe is one of the companies that has been sort of remote first. They have these remote engineering hubs. So I would think of any of these tech companies that's actually going to realistically encourage people to work remotely. The founders are from Ireland. They're very much a global company. I could see them really meaning it and saying, yeah, of course, go live where you want if they're offering this incentive. Although you have to wonder for an employee, do you really want to be that far from the mothership if the this fast-growing $36 billion company is based in San Francisco? Do you really want to take the risk career-wise and move to somewhere where the lifestyle might be better and it might be a little cheaper uh, to live. Julie, will give you a quick last word on this. I was just going to say, California-based companies, I'm here in California, the air quality is terrible, the smoke is everywhere with the fires. A lot of people here are thinking about where they could go, where not just the quality of life, but the ability to go outside would be better. So I think it'll be interesting. I think these companies will start to invest more in, in events every couple months, every year to bring their employees together. But I think a lot of people are going to want to leave San Francisco. Yeah, so sad, oh, especially with the fires on top of everything this year. It was really just awful. Kate, thank you. We appreciate it, our Kate Rooney. And finally, one of the largest and most complete Tyrannosaurus Rex fossils ever to be unearthed is expected to fetch between six and eight million dollars when it's auctioned off by Christie's next month. Bet you didn't think we we're going to talk about dinosaurs today, but seriously, this is the new kind of luxury item that's up for auction. This is a 67 million year old fossil. It's named Stan after the paleontologist who found it 30 years ago, and it'll be on display at the auction house until October 6th. 
Robert, I don't, we were talking about this, you know, my team and I, and none of us like the idea of taking this precious artifact of our shared, you know, planetary existence and just letting it go sit who knows where. Yeah, I agree. Look, there are a lot of scientists who say that dinosaur bones and fossils are part of the Earth's memory, and this needs to be collectively owned, not owned by some billionaire that wants it in their living room. But on the other hand, you need to fund these digs. This dinosaur stand took 30,000 hours to excavate in South Dakota. Someone needs to pay for that. And while T-Rex uh, skeletons of this quality are very rare, there, there have been about 50 T-Rex skeletons found. So they are rare, but not that rare. And likely this one will probably be purchased by a wealthy person or even a company and then put in a museum where scientists can still study them. Santoli, don't you think we should require it, uh, you know, somehow? No, you know, say it should be in a museum. I wouldn't mind a requirement that say it should be on public display. I also would imagine perhaps a buyer. I could see it in a hedge fund office, uh, basically being their risk management program, essentially. Just a little bit of a warning. And because hedge how funds you don't want to end up. And hedge funds. <laughs> And hedge funds are also going extinct, so that would That's be right. appropriate. <laughs> Robert, we have a picture of you with Stan. Uh, I think if anyone's curious about the scale here, uh, this thing is massive. You can see why someone would be interested. Please, if you end up buying this thing, take precious care of it. Let us all come bring our kids to see it. Julia, you'd bring your kids, right? Oh, my, my kids would love to have this. First of all, six to eight million dollars. I don't know who could afford to put this in their house or how much room you would need to have it. But I think my favorite part is, and I do hope that it ends up in a museum or in some public place, assembly is not included. <laughs> 188 pieces, a lot of structures that are needed to hold it all together and hold it up. But even after you buy it, you then have to pay to have it assembled. This could be a disaster in the making. Thank That's you right. all, Michael Santoli, Julia Borson, and Robert Frank for Rapid Fire today. Coming up, we're less than 20 minutes, about 15 minutes away now from the last Fed rate decision before the election. With federal stimulus stymied, one economist has a bold idea for small biz lending next. And Delivering Alpha is back for its 10th year on September 30th. Some of the big names include Stephen Schwartzman, Saudi Aramco's Yasser al-Rumayan. Visit DeliveringAlpha.com to learn more and register and don't miss it this year. We're back in two. Welcome back. We're just minutes away from the Fed's rate decision. It's the last one ahead of the presidential election. And my next guest says the Fed's arsenal of unconventional policies to guide us through this pandemic needs to be pushed even further. For more, let's welcome in William Lee. He's chief economist at the Milken Institute. It's good to see you again. So what do you mean by, by pushing their tools further or doing more here? Well, Kelly, the COVID-19 has really blasted some pretty significant holes into our economy. The, it short-circuited the ability of the Fed to, to really push the economy because huge segments of leisure, hospitality, transportation, retail, and even business services, people facing business services, have been pretty much suppressed by the public health policies of shutting down the economy. And so what the Fed has to do is to make sure that when it pushes on its instruments of, of, of quantitative easing and, and, and trying to push funding into the markets, it goes to the right places. The last thing we need is to overheat the already overheating markets like housing and right. auto sales. So, so what I'm suggesting is that we need a targeted measure whereby the Fed can purchase and provide funding to smaller businesses which are really suffering. And, and we saw that the banks have really been unable to do this under the SBA administration because the banks are just way too slow. 
By the on the other hand, financial markets, a lot of uh, IPO uh, IPOs and, and a lot of SPACs and, and a lot of the uh, the venture capitalists are specialists in getting money out to the people who need the funding, especially people who are going to be innovative and shift their business models to be more adaptive to the post-COVID world. Right. So I think that's the direction that we have to go. Yeah, and I know you think you that you're saying that small businesses should be able to kind of uh, go directly to the markets, supported by the Fed, maybe borrow that way and, and keep their businesses going. Um, but so you, the tools that you're describing by the Fed aren't necessarily balance sheet tools. And you talked about the fact that quantitative easing needs to go to the right places. Are you worried that that's not happening right now? Or are we just in the early innings of this liquidity making its way through the economy? Well, it scares me that the size of the Fed's balance sheet is no large, in fact, smaller than it was in June. It scares me even more that its Main Street lending program really hasn't taken off. So the Fed clearly is not in a position to be able to do this itself. It needs the help of specialists to be able to push money into the right places. And now the Fed has done the right thing. It says, we're going to go out there and support the capital markets. So we will buy corporate debt. We will buy these special instruments that are designed to get money to the right places. So all we need are some regulatory changes um, that allows the Fed to essentially buy these special instruments and allow the, the specialists to package them in a way to sell it to the public. Don't forget, there's a lot of people waiting for uh, uh, investments that have some high yield to it or some chances for profit. So it's not like these things are going to go unsold. So the key is to be able to shift and target the regulations in a way. And, yeah. and that's the role of fiscal policy. Yeah, no, it's true. And that kind of reminds us that the Fed is trying to do a lot, kind of be be all things to all people right now. We'll hear more from them directly in just a couple of minutes, Bill. For now, thanks very much for joining us. Appreciate it today. Bill Lee of the Milken Institute. Let's look at shares of Snowflake, which are soaring in their trading debut today. They opened just about 90 minutes ago. It's the biggest software IPO of the year, but it's just one of four this week. How 2020 could be software's biggest year ever. That's next. Remember, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We're back in two. Welcome back. Whoever thought in 1995 we would say this, but software is having a moment. I mean, I guess back then it was exciting to go to Walmart and look at the boxes on the shelf, but it's nothing like it is today. Look at Snowflake, which just went public about an hour or two ago. It is up 125% today. It's around $270. It's worth about 60 or $70 billion right now, as much as Goldman Sachs. But this isn't the only software debut even happening this week. Bob Bassani is here with more on this boom that we're seeing in the IPO world. Bob? It's quite a year. Mark Andreessen, what, 10 years ago, said software is going to eat the world. It's happening, folks. This is the biggest year ever for software IPOs. How much is being raised? More than ever before. $7.8 billion so far. That's including the four IPOs that are coming this week. And that's not including Palantir and some of the other ones that are coming in the following weeks. This pales in comparison. If you look back, the biggest one ever was $5 billion. That was back in 2018. So already we've passed the biggest ones ever. Why now? Well, every company has to upgrade their software to address the fact that the country's moving online, but there's a lot of these companies filling very particular niches. Snowflake is big in data management. It's a pure play on cloud computing. JFrog does updating for software companies, software updates, essentially. Uh, we have Unity Software. They do 3D games. Half of the top online games use the platform. Sumo Logic does data analysis. They help 
customers. They show how customers interact with companies' websites. And Asana does project management, very particular niches that some of the big companies like Oracle and Microsoft don't serve without big, big suites of products. Big help to the market is the existing software IPOs have done very well this year. You look at Agora, you look at Jamf, you look at Zoom Info, all of them are up. That's a real big help when you want to go public. Finally, just on Snowflake, guys, can I point out 120 is not the price. That's what it was sold for yesterday. 245 is where people were buying it at. It traded as low. I saw 232 trade several. Now it's above that right now, but you can see uh, we were trading between 232 and $319. Now this has got a $70 billion market cap, okay, but that's pretty crazy numbers to trade in between. Remember, below 245, a lot of people are losing money who bought early. Back to you. That's a great point. It's a huge range uh, as this thing opens today, Bob, and for such a big uh, market cap. Bob Bassani, thank you, sir. We'll see you shortly. We're just about five okay. minutes away from the Fed's latest rate decision. I'll join Tyler Matheson on Power Lunch for that after this quick break. Don't go anywhere. The Fed call of the day in a couple of minutes time. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.